0: Good morning, Missio. Hear now the word of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for God.
1: Hey, Missio, would you pray with me one more time? Jesus, we thank you that you're with us. That as Heather prayed, and as we've been praying in this space, that you are with us despite space and time, despite the distance that we experience, despite all of the strange moments that we live in, that you are with us. And that because you are with us, we are your people. Not because we get to gather in the same building, not because like the institution exists in the way that it normally did, but because you are with us and you've filled us with your spirit and you've called us to join your purposes. That's what makes us and constitutes us your people. So today, could we hear that story that we are your people, called to participate in your work? That's true despite how disruptive or distant or strange or normal all the things that we're experiencing are. And you're with us. Help us pay attention. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been in a series entitled Mountains Made of Clay, walking through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, the second letter that he writes to the church in Corinth. And the whole purpose of this letter, to summarize it or to make it simple, the thing that Paul is trying to do, trying to help the church do, is to see their life, all of it, through the work of Jesus to understand the ups and the downs and the middles and the strange moments and the different pieces and the work they do and the way they gather and the history that they come from and the future they'll live into, to understand all of it through the lens, the story, the work of Jesus. He's trying to show them the kingdom of God changes everything. But the issue for the church at Corinth is they don't understand how big the kingdom is, how big the work of Jesus is, how all-encompassing this thing that Christ is accomplishing is. They don't understand that it invades all of life and there is no domain of their own existence over which Christ isn't involved. So Paul's trying to unpack what does it look like for Jesus to be Lord of everything? What does it look like for the kingdom to touch everything? What does it look like to be the people of God in everything? And we do the same thing, I think, actually today. This weekend, I was at an event, socially distanced event, taking all the precautions, and I overheard someone from Missio was having a conversation with somebody who does not go to Missio, and the person who does not go to Missio was complaining that Missio had gotten involved in conversations around racial justice. And specifically, what that person said was, the church should not be involved in politics. It's outside the purview of the church. It's outside the scope of the gospel. It's outside the scope of religious things. And so the church should not be involved in it. But the problem is is that reduces what it is that Jesus is doing. It reduces the thing this whole book is about, the whole story is about, the whole church is about, which is not just the internal reclamation or redemption, but the redemption and reconciliation of all things in this world. And all things means all things. And so there is nothing outside the purview of the kingdom. No politic, no social issue, no spiritual issue, no part of the family, no conversation. The gospel goes all places. And so that means the church has to go all places. And this is where Paul moves in kind of like the second chunk of his letter, where we've been the last couple of weeks. From chapter 5, on Paul begins to unpack the, the practical ramifications of this story. If the gospel, if the thing that Jesus is doing goes all places, then the people of God are called into all places. But not called to go the way the world goes, not called to go the way that Rome does or Corinthian power does, but called to go the way that Jesus does. As a people of reconciliation, as co-workers with Christ. So Paul is beginning to explain this, to show this, to show that we go where God goes. That's what it means to be the people of God, to go where God goes, to follow Jesus' lead. But then as you come to the second part of chapter 6, you've just had this beautiful moment, that Heather talked about last week, where we are called co-workers with Christ. But then you get this second part from verse 14 to 7, verse 1, where it gets a little strange. And I don't know that I've ever received so many questions about what I was going to do with a sermon as I have this week with this text specifically. People are like, what are you you going to talk about? It's weird. How are you going to handle it? What's it about? The staff was like, what do we have to talk about? Like, what are you doing? And I think that's fair. Like, there's a lot of weird questions in this moment. But if we take the passage, verse 14 through 7, verse 1, and put it into its context within the letter and all these things that Paul is doing, it begins to make a bit of sense. It comes in the context of Paul talking about the work of Jesus, and it comes in the context of Paul talking about where the church is called to go. And it also comes in the context of Paul's first letter, that he's already written to the, the church about certain things. And, and one of the, the concerns that come up with this ch- passage from 6, verse 14 to 7, 1, is what does it mean about the relationship the church is supposed to have with people who aren't a part of the church? Does it mean we don't have any relationship with them? Are we supposed to distance and be separate and segregated? But the context of this moment, Paul has already dealt with that conversation in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 through 11, where Paul says, no, you're supposed to have relationship with the world around you, the people in the world. And he also deals with in that moment that you're not supposed to put Christian standards onto non-Christian people. So it's not about those things. He's already dealt with that. That's the context of this story. And another important piece of context is that this moment is not about individuals. We often make this passage about individuals, and it has huge implications for how one individual engages another individual, but Paul is not talking to individuals. The whole letter is a conversation with the collective, with the church, with the people of God, So this moment, like all the letters, has to be towards the people, towards the collective. And so if it's not about those things, if it's not about separating ourselves from the world and not being friends with it, if it's not about applying the standards of Christianity to those who are not Christians, and if it is towards the collective, not the individual, then what is this passage about? Well, it's about specifically... That the church should not be yoked to Rome. That the people of God should not be yoked to false kingdoms. All throughout this letter, we've just been in this passage, we are called a colony of the kingdom, embassies and ambassadors of the thing that God is doing, co-workers with God, that means we are moving in a different direction with a different means than the world around us. We're playing a different game with a different set of rules. And Paul is like, you cannot be yoked to an empire that plays by a different set of rules and moves in a different direction. It will pull in two different ways. One will get dragged and the whole thing will get destroyed. You cannot be yoked unevenly to Rome. Now, Paul says this because the church in Corinth, just like us today, we have a tendency of yoking ourselves to Rome. This is true all throughout the biblical story. Whenever problems arise in the Old Testament, Israel looks to nations around them. In fact, one of the earliest sets of problems, Israel asked God to give them a king And they say specifically, so that we might be like the nations around us. Let us be yoked like them. Let us look like them. Let us have a similar kind of ethic and way and politic as the world around us. Later in the story, when trouble arises, they'll make alliances with Egypt or Babylon or Assyria. Nations that will conquer them or have already conquered them. Yoking themselves to other powers in order to protect themselves, to preserve themselves. As you come into the New Testament, during the time of Jesus, you see that the Sadducees, religious leaders, have linked themselves to Rome, thinking that it would be easier to preserve the Jewish people in the way of Yahweh through this yoked relationship to Rome. And today, it's America, it's partisan politics, it's money, it's power. We yoke ourselves to these things, thinking that's how you accomplish something in this world. That's how you control or change it or fix it. Oftentimes, under the best veneers of like hope and hospitality, we yoke ourselves to the world. And Paul says you cannot do that because as soon as the church becomes yoked to the world, the church is destroyed. It stops functioning like the church. It can't move in the direction or by the means the church is called to. This is what Paul says explicitly with his examples that come right after this. He says, you cannot be yoked to unbelievers. And then he goes on to say this. For what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Righteousness is often a way of describing like the way of God. The way that God operates in the world, the way that the people of God are to operate in the world. And Paul is making a distinction. He says that there is a difference between the way of God, the way of the people of God, and the way of the world. That there is a difference between citizens of God's kingdom and citizens of America. That there is a difference between how those two things operate. And there's a frame that we can use to help us understand how different it is. Last week, Heather said this statement that I just keep thinking about, which is that the cross- shapes our vocation. That our understanding of grace, our understanding of the cross, it informs how we live and embody and inhabit the world. Well, that's also true for how we think about what the way of God is versus the way of the world that is shaped by the cross. We believe in a politic that demands we die for our enemies. That's the way of the kingdom, the way of the cross, sacrificial love that absorbs hostility into itself and in its turn dispenses grace and welcome. That is the way of the church. That's the way of the people of God is the cross of Christ. It shapes our vocation, it shapes our ethics, it shapes our citizenship. So Paul says, what way, what room is there for the way of God, for righteousness and wickedness? None. Because an ethics of the cross doesn't make sense in a world rooted in power and control and management and coercive violence. Even when sometimes the, the institutions of the world and the church are moving in the same direction, like he's like, the, there's a difference in how they operate in the world. The way of God and the way of the world do not mix, they cannot be yoked together. To be yoked to the world will end in compromising the way of the kingdom. So he says that's one reason that we can't be yoked to Rome. But he also says you cannot be yoked to the world around you because they worship a different God than you do. In verse 15 he says this, What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? There's two different kinds of worship one that worships God and one that worships something else. Now, I think in the church we talk a, a decent amount about idolatry, about false worship, about worshiping other gods. So I think we're like kind of familiar with that language. And there's, I think there's maybe two ways that we can think about it. On one hand, worship is that which flows from what we love. Right? We love something, and that's how we know what we worship. So we'll you know, try to do exegesis on our own heart, diagnose like, what is it that we love, what is it that we actually care about, and that reveals what we worship. And I think most of us, if you come to Missio, like if I've had conversations with you, I think most of us are genuinely trying to love the God of the Bible and not the idols of the world. I think that's genuinely true of the people of this church and the people of the church generally is that we've named this, we've like diagnosed it, and we're like, no, no, I want to love Jesus more than I love the world. And I know it's hard and it's, it's tricky and I'm working it out, but I want to. We want to love Jesus. But I think there's another kind of false worship that's almost more insidious than what you love, and it's what you believe works. It's what you believe gets things done in the world. What you believe is actually in control. It's less to do with what we love or who we love and more to do with what we believe has power. God really believed that a lot of us love God, but we do not believe that God is in control. And we do not believe the way of God impacts the world around us, that it changes the world around us, that it matters in this world. Now, we might believe that God is powerful in a spiritual way. We might believe that God is powerful in an emotional way. We might believe that God is powerful in like interpersonal ways. But when it comes to the world, when it comes to the social justice, political ramifications around us, we don't believe that God is powerful or in control or that the way of God matters for that moment. We say we love God, but we live as though something else is in charge. We hope in finances or violence or power or even the political process or even our own smarts and our own expertise to accomplish something in the world around us. And all of it reveals what we really worship. Because what we really worship isn't always what we love. Sometimes it's just what we think works. And Paul says those two stories, well, they can't be yoked together. That Christians are called into a different imagination about the world, a different story about the world, a different story about who has power, about who is in control, and about where the world is going. And that story that Christians are called into is what's supposed to animate everything that we do when we gather the table, when we... Do you listen to me? Why else would you do that? When you sing songs, when you practice in your home, you're animated by a different story. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas has a really good way of saying it. He says this, quote, We would like a church that again asserts that God, not nations, rule the world, that the boundaries of God's kingdom transcend those of Caesar's, and that the main political task of the church is the formation of a people who see clearly the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay the price. He's like, at the, at the beginning of that statement is the assertion the church believes that God, not the powers of the world, not Rome, not America, not partisan politics, not money, actually rule the world. And that story animates us differently than it animates Rome. Differently than it animates the political structures of the world around us. Why does it matter? Like, why does it matter that we can't be yoked and these things are so different? Well, Paul says very specifically in verse 16, here is why it matters. We are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. All throughout this story, Paul's letter, all of Paul's letters, really, he is using different metaphors to try to help us understand what our vocation is, what it means to be the people of God. Sometimes he'll say embassy. Sometimes he'll say body of Christ in the world. Sometimes he'll describe us as a family. Sometimes, like right here, as a temple. And each of those metaphors are getting at a similar kind of idea, that the church is called, constituted, formed to extend God's way into the world. That we have been called and constituted and formed a people to extend the way and rule and presence of God into the world around us, into our families and our neighborhoods, our workplaces, even our very lives. And that's why the church has been formed to extend God's work into the world. And Paul says, like, that's what the promises of God are in this moment. He lists these three different statements that are these distinct promises that God gives, and each one helps us understand this. He says that God is with you. Like a temple, God receives you, and God has adopted you. These are these three Old Testament promises. Like, and so therefore, because that's true, because you have been received and adopted and formed into a people, he says this, therefore pursue holiness. 7 verse 1, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. perfecting holiness. In the Old Testament, this language had more reference than it does for us today. Because it's language that kind of revolves around like religious things. Being in the temple, the actions of the temple, living in the temple. And everything that was used in the temple had to be set apart. Sometimes that language is sanctified or here had to be purified. Things that had temple purposes, specific purposes. They needed to be unique or holy. And that language of holy or unique, we don't use it a lot. And so it it, it tends to evoke in our minds like language of otherness or distance or difference. And that is true in a sense. God is often described as holy because he is different and other. But what makes God holy is what matters. And it is that he is the source of goodness and love and power. And holiness is like the radiation of that goodness out of him. And that's what makes him different and other. Not that he chooses to be distant or he's withdrawn, but because he is so good. That's what makes God other. But it is that very goodness, that very holiness, that is promised in Scripture in Ezekiel or in Revelation to flow out out of God's temple, into the world to heal. So you know that it's not about distance or withdrawal. It's about healing the world. So you take those two images, that God is holy and distant because of his goodness. He's not distant. He is holy because of his goodness. And then Paul calling the church a living temple. And you put those two images together, and it means that we who are called into the way of God, this unique, set-apart way, are formed into a temple. Why? So that God's presence might flow out of us to heal the world. This is why it matters so much that you pursue holiness or perfecting holiness. Not because you want to be set-apart or different from the world around you, because through your unique way of existence in the world, our unique collective existence, the healing of God begins to move and extend to all the world. Again, I really like the way that Hauerwa says this. He says, We believe that many Christians do not fully appreciate the odd way in which the church, when it is most faithful, goes about its business. We want to claim that the church's oddness is essential to its faithfulness. The church cannot be yoked to Rome. It's too odd. It's too weird. It operates too differently in the world. It has a different means and a different end, and it worships a different God. And it is essential that we understand that, that we cannot be yoked to Rome, not because we want to be distant and different, but because we want the people of Rome to experience the healing of God. That is the vocation of the church. That is the vocation of the community of God's people. To extend healing. So, Missy, as we come to a conclusion, we wrap up. I just want to ask you three questions. Three questions to help us think about what it is that Paul is calling us into, what it is that God is inviting us to participate into. And the first is this. You see, who do you believe has power and control in our world? Who do you believe has power and control in our world? This is the first thing that we have to identify in terms of are we yoked to Rome? Do we believe the same salvation story that Rome does? Or do we believe the salvation story of the Bible? Second, what do the habits and ethics and actions of your life and community reveal about who you trust? Just pay attention to the collective existence and to your own life and take notes and ask questions and Where does it reveal that we actually trust and what we actually believe is in control? Because if we spend all of our time investing in gaining enough knowledge in order to solve problems, then, oh, obviously we trust ourselves and our own mental acuity to be able to accomplish purposes. Not that education is bad. Where do your actions reveal your trust? And finally, where do you need to perfect or pursue holiness? Not as a way of distance and withdrawal, but as a way of walking into the unique way that God has called the people to live, to extend healing. So where is it you need to trust that God is actually in control? Where is it you need to pay attention to the things that God is doing around you? Where is it that you need to know God's story about you over Rome's story about you? Where do you need to pursue holiness? And Mr., the easiest place to begin is at the table. Because at the table, as we come together and we break bread and we take the cup, we literally declare a different story from the story of Rome or America or partisan politics or corporate greed. We declare a story that God is in control. And that in this unique and strange and upside-down way, God is accomplishing his purposes. So, Missio, if you can, wherever you are, as we finish worshiping together today, would you come to the table, declare a different story, begin to live into the way that God has called you? Let's pray. Jesus, today, as we hear your story and as we gather at your table, would you help us know the story of you? Would we see all the places that we trust a different story, a different gospel, one of of power or violence or money or idolatry, whatever it is, would we see where we trust that story and turn and trust you? And as we trust you and trust the story that you're telling of this world, would it reshape everything we think, how we practice, how we live, where we pursue? And would we live into the unique way of you that only makes sense in light of your story? So be with us.
0: In your name we pray. Amen.